Ladies and gentlemen, if I may have your attention, because of the enormous importance of the next presentation, we're going to start four minutes early. Rob. Well, well, thanks, everybody, and, and thank you, Tom. Uh, it, it, it's, it's such a pleasure to, uh, to be able to speak to you after dinner. Um, I love these dinners. I love these conversations. I feel actually very guilty because uh, I realize that I'm now ending conversations. Um, but they will continue. They will continue after my talk um, at the bar and, and throughout the, uh, the rest of our, our time together, which I'm very sad to say is, is almost drawing to a close. We have one last full day. And... Uh, this is my very last uh, presentation. And uh, it is, as you can see, on, on George Washington. And I really think that George Washington is someone who, um, you know, we used to very habitually honor George Washington in the United States. We really don't honor him as much uh, anymore as, as, as I think we should. Um, we used to have Washington's birthday, now it's President's Day. I, don't, I think most presidents don't deserve to be celebrated, but <laughs> Washington does. Speak, speaking of birthdays, uh, I wanted to, to mention um, that tomorrow is uh, the Cato Institute's own Ashley Benson's birthday. So happy birthday to Ashley. And if there's anyone else with a birthday uh, about whom I don't know, I, I apologize for, for leaving you out and wish you a happy birthday too. Um, it, is, uh, it is really um, you know, great to think about um, how time passes and uh, certain things don't change. And I, I think that, or I hope that, the, the American peoples and the, and the people of the world, that their admiration for George Washington doesn't change. The thing about George Washington that is so singular, so special, so, uh, so important to, to us, to all of us in this room and to the history of the United States, is his restraint, is his willingness to stare power in the face and, and after he had answered his country's call, in, in, in various capacities, to return power to the people. I mean, that is really what makes George Washington so special. And uh, I've, I've talked briefly about his presidency. T tonight, I, I intend to focus on his leadership of the Continental Army um, during the War for Independence. And, and, and we know, of course, um, that Washington was selected to lead the Continental Army even, even before there was a declaration of independence. You know, this, this was initially a rebellion, a rebellion against Great Britain. And the members of the Continental Congress were certainly reluctant revolutionaries. They didn't take this lightly. They were British too. They understood that it was best to petition, to boycott, to protest, to complain, to hope and hope and hope that Parliament and the King would see the light. But of course, in the summer of 1775, when George Washington was selected to head the Continental Army, he was being put in charge of a military that arose as a result of the British government's actions against us at Lexington and at Concord. And, and one of the, the, the first decisions that the members of the Continental Congress had to make was who should lead this new army? And, and maybe one of the first questions that, that we all should ask is, well, why? Why George Washington? Why did they choose him? 
What made him such a good candidate in their eyes? And I think there are a number of different reasons, a number of different things that qualified George Washington for this post. Um, one, of course, he had military experience. He was a veteran of the French and Indian War. Uh, and, and during the French and Indian War, as a 23-year-old, he was a full bird colonel in the Virginia militia during the French and Indian War. So that, that is a position of, 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 of great rank and great authority. And he had a great deal of experience from the French and Indian War. Not all of it positive. Certainly not every battle he participated in was a victory, but he learned a lot. He learned about a lot from his successes as well as his failures. One of the, uh, the great failures of the British, incidentally, and I think they had already started to read their, their book, How to Lose an Empire for Dummies. Washington deeply desired, as, this, as a young man, to, to be able to do what people in Britain did and buy a commission as an officer in the British army. And in a colossal mistake, the British government said no. No, because Washington wasn't English enough. No, because Washington was too provincial. I mean, what a, a horrible mistake the British made. You know, if, 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 if they had uh, decided to allow Washington to become a member of their regular army, an officer in their regular army, Imagine how history might have changed. As it stood, however, Washington's experience with the British was, was one that illustrated for him at a very early stage in the imperial crisis the degree of, of disrespect and even contempt that the British had for the American people. Washington, as a colonel in the Virginia militia, had to salute an ensign or a lieutenant, the two lowest officer ranks in the British Army. Really, uh, you know, astounding. But Washington, as he stood there as a member of the Continental Congress, he was a military man. He was a military man despite the fact that he spent most of his life, most of his adult life, wearing civilian clothes. He continued to study the military art, he continued to read widely about tactics and strategy and history. He, uh, he was mortified, frankly, that he had never attended college, unlike you know, so many of his well-educated peers. And, and he, he, he worked very hard to make up for it through self-study. He was a person who, like the members of the Continental Congress, had spent most of his adult life not in uniform, but as a legislator, as a civilian legislator, as a member of the Virginia House of Burgesses. And these, of course, were a people who understood that the project upon which they were about to engage, this war for independence, possessed tremendous pitfalls. I mean, they needed to create an army that was strong enough to defeat or, or at least outlast the army of the world's greatest superpower. And, and yet somehow it could not be so strong as to pose a threat to the liberty for which this war was being fought in the first place. And, and, and George Washington, this, this man of history, this, this self-taught thinker, George Washington knew his history. 
He knew about Caesar. He knew about Cromwell. He shared with the Continental Congress an understanding about the importance of civilian leadership and civilian control of the military and, 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 and the importance of the allegiance and fidelity of people in uniform to their civilian leaders. So that, too, qualified George Washington for the position of commander-in-chief. He had other advantages. He was six foot three. You know, he had the stature of a general. He looked like a general. He looked great on horseback. There's this fantastic story. In uh, 1772, uh, Charles Wilson Peale, the famous portrait painter, visited uh, Washington at Mount Vernon. And uh, Peale saw there's a group of young men who were also staying there at Mount Vernon who were down uh, by the Potomac River. And according to Peale's account, they were stripped to the waist which I think back then meant they had their top coats taken off. Um, but uh, they were stripped to the waist, and they were uh, it, it, participating in what, what apparently was a, a popular athletic pursuit of the time called pitching the bar. And what it was is they had uh, these you know, iron rods, these heavy iron rods, and, and the men would compete to see how far they could throw these iron rods. So here are a bunch of guys. They're 18, they're 19, they're 20, and they're hurling these things. And, and down walks George Washington. George Washington at the time, you know, is in his early 40s. He, uh, he leaves his coat on. He uh, asks for one of these, these bars, these iron rods. He, he picks it up, and uh, he throws it. And it goes far, far, very far, twice as far as, as, as the best throw of, of, of the best guy. And Washington sort of dusts his hands off. And he says, gentlemen, please summon me when you beat my pitch. <laughs> so, you know, he was that kind of leader. He had another thing going for him, um, very much in the same uh, vein as, as, as did Thomas Jefferson. You might remember from this afternoon uh, or this morning, I mentioned that John Adams insisted that Jefferson should write the Declaration of Independence because he was a Virginian. And it was really important to bring Virginia and the other southern colonies on board this enterprise. And uh, Washington was a Virginian. This was a war that had begun in the north. This was a war that had spilled the blood of New Englanders. This was a war that was being fought by a continental army. But it was really just an aspirational name. It was really just a collection of soldiers from Massachusetts and the other states of New England. But Washington, a Virginian, possessed the capacity to make this a truly continental struggle, to bring in people from Virginia and other future southern states. And so Washington has many different things going for him. But maybe the thing that he had going best of all was the fact that the members of the Continental Congress knew him, and they knew what made him tick. They understood him. They understood that he was someone who, who was not grasping for power. He was someone who had every reason in the world, frankly, to, uh, he could have just stayed home. I mean, he was the, the richest man in Virginia, and that counted for something back then. And that was considered a plus back then. That gave him the independence of, of mind and means, they believed. And yet here is Washington, a member of the Continental Congress, willing to stick his neck out there, willing to put himself at risk. He was the man in, in all of Virginia who, who in, in a way, had more to lose than anyone. 
and, and, and he cared deeply enough about the cause to put himself, to put his life, to put his fortune, to put his honor at risk. And Washington, they knew, was someone who they believed they could trust. You know, Washington, uh, you, you probably didn't realize this, Washington had a favorite play. Uh, he had a favorite play, and I think it says a lot about him as a man and his attitude toward politics and his, frankly, his cynicism toward politicians. In uh, 1770, one of his House of Burgess's colleagues, a man named Robert Munford, wrote a play called The Candidates. And uh, Washington saw this performed. You know, he bought a, a, a printed copy of it. Uh, he, he really admired this play. And it's, it's not surprising, given what we know about George Washington. This play is, is all about um, the excesses and the insincerities of politicians and, and just how dangerous they can be. Um, the play has a number of different uh, characters. Um, the, uh, the, the, the main one is this kind of um, sleazy, conniving, um, power-hungry office seeker named Sir John Toddy. And Sir John Toddy has a, uh, uh, a handler, uh, his own sort of Karl Rove or David Axelrod, a uh, man named Guzzle. And so the, 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 the play opens with Sir Don, John Toddy um, sort of introducing himself to the audience. And he says, gentlemen and ladies, your servant, my old friend Prize, how goes it? How does your wife and children do? Now, Prize is named Prize probably because he is the prize. He's a voter, right? His vote is the prize. And Sir John Toddy is, is sort of uh, cozying up with Prize. Now, Prize, in a, in a stage whisper, says, How the devil came he to know me so well and never spoke to me before in his life? But then we see the answer. We see how John Toddy um, knows the identity of the people in this crowd. Guzzle, his handler, whispers to him, Roger Twist. And then Sir John says, Ha, Mr. Roger Twist, your servant, sir. I hope your wife and children are well. But Trist, I mean, he, he really kind of pops this balloon. He blows this guy's cover. He says, there, there's my wife. I have no children at your service. And uh, then we, uh, we have Guzzle, his handler, trying to fire up this crowd, trying to uh, work them into a frenzy in support of Sir John Toddy um, at the expense of another candidate, this one a much more virtuous one, named Woodby. Um, Guzzle says, suppose, Mr. Woodby, we were to want you to get the price of rum lowered. Would you do it? And, and, and Woodby's like, well, how? How could I possibly do that? How, you know, how as a legislator would that possibly be in my power? You know, I, I, I could not. And Guzzle says, huzzah for Sir John. He has promised to do it. Huzzah for Sir John. Maybe politics hasn't changed all that much after all. <laughs> and, 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 and then Worthy, a man who is currently a member of the legislature, he addresses Woodby. And, and their conversation is really interesting and it's really instructive about what the values were, um, what the expectations were. Of, of, of office holders back in America in the 18th century. Worthy says, I have little inclination to service. You know my aversion to public life would be. 
and, and how little I have ever courted the people for the troublesome office that they have hitherto imposed on me. I mean, that was the ethic. That was the notion. That, that public service is, is a private burden. That this is something that we do when, when, when our neighbors, our country, call upon us to serve. That it is not something that we seek. It's not something that we run for. The last person you would want to entrust with power, they believed in the 18th century, was someone who wanted power. Because people who wanted power were scary. And they still are. And would be, would be responds to Worthy. He says, I believe you enjoy as much domestic happiness as any person, and that your aversion to a public life proceeds from the pleasure you find at home. But, sir, it surely is the duty of every man who has abilities to serve his country to take up the burden and to bear it with patience. So this is very much the ethic of George Washington. He is, is willing to serve if, if people press him into service. He is not seeking office. He is not seeking responsibilities. But he does know that it is his, his obligation to answer his country's call when it is made. And his country called. And, and he was sent off to Massachusetts to take command of the Continental Army. And he knew, too, just, just how difficult uh, a, a challenge he would face. And he knew, too, the extent to which the, the Continental Congress and the American people and resisting Great Britain were, were playing with fire. I, I, I showed you this, uh, this quotation earlier today. It's worth showing it again. Um, James Madison, as you all might remember, said, of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded because it comprises and develops the germ of every other. Debts and taxes and standing armies and encroachments on civil liberty and, and of course, the, life, the loss of, of life and, and, and fortunes. But, but Washington was, was, was certain about one thing. He was not going to be putting at risk his honor. He was not going to let people down. He was not going to disappoint. Washington takes command of the Continental Army at a time um, when it was uh, really just this, this fledgling um, creation, essentially a collection of militia units from New England. Um, the people of America, at the early stage of the war, I mean, this, the Revolutionary War is, is like many wars. Um, in the beginning, people are very enthusiastic about it. As the war wears on, morale begins to slip. In the beginning, in 1775, I mean, even before Lexington and Concord, people were very, very passionate about the prospect of standing up and fighting for their liberty. A British traveler by the name of William Milne was traveling around the American South, and, and, and he wrote, as to politics, I think most of the people are mad. In other words, they're crazy. In North and South Carolina, Virginia, Maryland, they muster as if they are going to be attacked. And yet... We know what would happen. They were going to be attacked. The British were going to march out from Boston. They were going to go through Lexington to Concord to try to take the weapons, the ammunition of the Massachusetts militia. It's funny when we think about Lexington and Concord, you know, we, we, we tend to combine those two engagements into one big battle. 
I suppose there are good reasons for doing that. I think maybe one reason especially is, uh, you know, if you want to, to tell a story about the first battle in the history of, of the United States as this independent entity or nation of, of, of 13 different nations, you, you want it to be one that you actually achieve victory in. And if we just refer to the Battle of Lexington, gosh, that would be so embarrassing. Because, you know, the British, they march out in April of 1775. They arrive in Lexington um, right at dawn. You know, there's some brave uh, local uh, militiamen standing there on the green, you know, resolved to stand their ground. But, but when that shot is fired, we still don't know by whom. The British open fire, and Americans fall on the field, and those left standing start running. And, and, and you know, you certainly don't want to blame them. I mean, can you imagine the decision that they were making? Especially before the Declaration of Independence. More than a year before the Declaration of Independence. These people, you know, we think about George Washington as being, in some ways, the ultimate establishment man. And in some ways, he was. But he was a violent revolutionary who took up arms against his government. England was, was the most powerful. England was the most prosperous. And England was the freest nation on the planet. The problem for George Washington, the problem for the men at Lexington and Concord is it wasn't free enough. And they weren't free enough. And, and, and they had protested, they had petitioned, they had complained, they had boycotted enough. And now it was time to stand their ground. And as the British moved through Lexington and made their way to Concord, there they found people who did, who did stand their ground at the Old North Bridge. And, and, and the British, in, in the center of the town, started to, uh, to burn um, uh, carts that contained um, ammunition and uh, things for transporting cannons. They really didn't find much of anything at all in, in, in the arsenal, but what they found, they, they moved to this big pile on the road and they set it ablaze. And it was the men at the Old North Bridge. You know, if you ever go to the Old North Bridge, you can't really see the center of town from the Old North Bridge, but it's there, it's in the distance, it's behind the trees. The men at the Old North Bridge saw smoke rising from the town. The men at the Old North Bridge were convinced that the British had set fire to their homes. That's what put steel in their spine. That's what caused them to turn the British back. And the British begin this, this retreat as orderly as they can possibly make it, the, the 17 miles back to Boston. And, and here along this road, we see actual, authentic examples of Americans hiding in trees, sharpshooting the British as they passed, or hiding behind stone fences. You know, the call had gone out, and uh, Minutemen from throughout the countryside continued to descend upon this road firing at the British, and people who might have been taken by surprise when the British advanced past them the first time, now were ready. And, and one of them, one of my favorite characters, is an 80-year-old man who lived in Monotomy, Massachusetts, named Samuel Wedemore. 80 years old. He is a veteran of King George's War in the 1740s and the French and Indian War in the 1750s and 60s. He is ready. He's hiding behind a stone fence. He has his musket. It's loaded. He has two pistols. They're loaded. And he has a sword that he had taken from the body of a French officer who he had slain in King George's War. And uh, the British troops come down the road. And Samuel Wedemore 
He's there behind his stone fence. And he fires his musket. And down goes one redcoat. And then he fires again. And down goes a second redcoat. And the redcoats are like, where is this coming from? Whoever this is, this guy's a good shot. You know? He fires again. Down goes a third redcoat. Finally, they spot him. A bunch of redcoats with their bayonets fixed. Climb his, you know, scale his fence, jump over. And they proceed to stab him. 80-year-old Samuel Wedemore. They proceed to stab him. And I, I love this detail. I mean, it, you know, it's one of these numbers that's important in, sort of in the cosmology or numerology of the American Revolution. Guess how many times they stab with their bayonets Samuel Wedemore? <laughs> Thirteen times. <laughs> Thirteen times. One for each colony. And they don't just stab him. They also shoot him in the face. And they leave him for dead. But guess what? <laughs> he lives. 80-year-old Samuel Wedemore lives. He lives for 18 more years to die a 98-year-old citizen of the free and independent United States. I mean, it is a great story. Uh, he is, I think, the official like, state hero of Massachusetts. They celebrate him every February 3rd. Um, it's, it's fantastic. And it's fantastic because it's true. It's true. You can't make this stuff up. Second floor of his house, his 76-year-old wife, Faith Wedemore, is standing there with, with a crossbow. All right, that's not true. I, I, I made that part up. But the story of Samuel Wedemore is true. I mean, it really just goes to show the degree to which people were, were willing to put themselves out there, the enthusiasm that Washington had the opportunity to capitalize on at the very start of the war. Now, we, we know that uh, the war would be a series not only of victories, like, like conquered, but also losses, like Bunker Hill. It was a moral victory, perhaps, but, but it was a loss. We did lose the hill, and we lost a lot of great people as well. The, uh, the war would be a real struggle, a real struggle for the Continental Army, a real struggle for George Washington, especially as 1775 turned into 1776. As Washington, um, bowing to the will of the, of the Continental Congress, had to mount um, a defense of New York and Long Island, um, the British may have evacuated Boston, but they set their sights upon a new strategy that would try to separate the state's of New England off from the rest of the colonies. New England, they thought, was where the revolution had began. New England, they thought, was where this contagion had, had taken root. But if they could cut New England off, if they could amputate New England from the rest of the colonies, then, then perhaps this revolution could be contained. And the way to cut off New England, they believed, was by securing the Hudson River. Hudson River, of course, ran from New York City all the way up toward Canada. And the British had control of Canada. The British were able to get control of New York City. And this first phase of the war for independence would center around the North. And, and Washington, of course, had a rough go of it. And even though in July of 1776, we declared our independence. It's one thing to declare it. It's a, it's a much more difficult task to fight for it and to win it. 
And by the end of 1776, things didn't look very good. I mean, that, that was when Tom Paine said that these are the times that try men's souls. And Washington, at the end of this year, saw the possibility that his army might depart him. Most of the soldiers' enlistments would be up on the 1st of January, 1777. And, and Washington had to, to, to think hard about, well, what, what do I do? And what kind of war is this going to be? Should it be a war that is quick? Or is it more to our advantage if this is a war that lasts? If this is a war that we allow to drag on? Is this a war that we need to win? Or is this a war that we need to avoid losing? And in some ways, Washington, the student of military history, seems to have been informed by the, uh, the, 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 the stories of a Roman general named uh, Quintus Fabius Maximus. Quintus Fabius Maximus fought in the Second Punic War. He was famous for choosing his battles wisely, for reserving his strength, for not exposing his forces to unwise dangers. But when the moment was right, when the opportunity presented itself to strike with vengeance and, and then to take risks. I don't have any uh, photographs, obviously, of Quintus Fabius Maximus. Um, you know, I took some Latin in high school. His name basically means uh, big or fat Fabian the fifth. So I, I, I don't have any pictures of, of Fat Fabian, but to stand in for him, I have Fat Albert. So he'll, he'll represent Washington's Fabian strategy. And of course we know, of course we know at the end of the year in 1776, George Washington makes the fateful and, and bold move that before his, his army walks away, before he, he loses his army, his enlistments are about to, to run out. It's time to risk his army in an incredibly bold and in an incredibly unconventional move. He decides that he is going to cross the ice-choked Delaware River and attack the Hessians at Trenton. There's Fat Albert <laughs> on the boat with Washington. That's Washington as Fabian, Fat Albert. I mean, this is really unconventional. And this is a huge gamble, but Washington calculated that, you know, if he didn't take this, this risk, then the odds were really against him. And, and he was able to secure an amazing and great victory. And the timing could not have been better. The men of the Continental Army, their hopes buoyed by this great success, decided that they would make the call to reenlist. So not only did he uh, defeat the Hessians, but in, in this masterstroke, he saved his army. I have to say, though, that, that Washington's uh, decision to, to uh, preserve this kind of slow and deliberate strategy was not universally popular. As you can imagine, a lot of the members of the Continental Congress were impatient for this war to end with success. And, and, and people would sometimes grouse or complain about, about Washington. And, and, and the slow, deliberate nation, nature by which he prosecuted this war. John Adams, for example, wrote that Fabius was wise and brave, but zeal and fire 
and activity and enterprise strike my imagination too much. My toast is a short and violent war. Well, the war would be violent, but it would not be short. And that really was to the advantage of the American side. And this is something that George Washington, I think, perceived. Now, John Adams, he famously um, stated in 1776 that you could probably divide the American people into thirds. One third of the American people really supported independence. One third of American people remained loyal to the king. And the other third of the American people were ambivalent. They were on the fence. And, 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 and so what Washington appreciated was that the longer the British were here, the more they posed the ability to alienate the American people. I mean, if, if anyone should have taken a Dale Carnegie course, right, it was the British Army. They needed to, to make friends and influence people. I mean, aside from, from, from winning battles, they needed to win hearts and minds. And, and yet the longer they stayed, the more embittered the American people became. The longer the British stayed, the more they seemed like occupiers, the more they seemed like foreigners, the more they seemed like oppressors, the more the Continental Army seemed like the good guys. Defending Americans, defending their homes, defending their liberty. And so over the course of the war for independence, this, this, this set of fractions that John Adams spells out in 1776 begins to shift. The longer the war drags on, the smaller the number of loyalists, the smaller the number of people on the fence, the larger the number of people who support independence. Some loyalists, of course, um, move away. They might move to New York City, which the British occupied throughout the, uh, the course of the war. They might move uh, eventually to the Caribbean or England or to Canada. But most people ceased, you know, the, the percentages shifted mostly because people changed their mind. People would, would embrace the cause of independence. And, and the British, I have to say, and, and, and terrible things happen in war, but they did some terrible terrible things as far as violations of uh, not only civil liberties, but, but uh, attacks upon women, um, even murder. In, in, in the Hudson River Valley, one of the strategies that the British possessed for winning control of this area was to team up with Indians. And, and they made an agreement with Indians to go collect the scalps of patriots to collect the scalps of people who supported independence. And, you know, for the Native Americans, they were motivated by the, by the payment that they would receive and perhaps by the desire to clear Americans away. But they couldn't tell the difference between a patriot scalp and a loyalist scalp. And frankly, they didn't even really care, which was a terrible thing, especially perhaps for the loyalists of the Hudson River Valley. And there were many. I mean, there are many cases um, that we know about. There was a, a, a young loyalist uh, woman named Jane McRae. She was engaged to be married um, to, a, to a, a lieutenant in a loyalist militia unit. He was actually in charge of making payments to the Indians for the scalps that they brought to him. And 
you know, I, who, who knows what, what he was thinking about and, and, and who knows what his feelings were on this issue. And certainly he was probably distracted, you know, by his impending marriage to this woman who by all accounts was, you know, young and beautiful. She had this, you know, long flowing red hair. And so you could imagine his horror when, when there he's counting out the money and the Indians are reaching into the bag of scalps and pulling them out and piling them up one by one until finally they reached in and out they pulled the long, red, flowing, bloodied, unmistakable locks of his fiancée, Jane McRae. And, 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 and this incident, which occurred you know, in New York near uh, what is now Fort, Fort Edward, is something that people debate. You know, to what degree did this happen the way that we think it happened? I mean, we know Jane McRae was, in fact, killed. But really, what matters is not so much what happened, but again, what the American people thought happened. Washington used this story to maximum advantage. In, in, in 1780, he was still talking about it. He called upon the American people to repel an enemy from your borders, who, not content with hiring mercenaries, to lay waste your country, the Hessians, have now bought savages with the avowed and expressed intention of adding murder to desolation. And, and so the British, the more time passed, the, the, the more alienated the American people became, the less loyal to the crown people were, the more resentful toward the presence of the British in America the American people felt. And of course, the British would try a number of different strategies. They tried duplicity and, and the, uh, the treason of Benedict Arnold to try to capture West Point. They, uh, they turned their attentions to the South. They believed that if they uh, focused the war in the American South, perhaps there they might succeed better. The British were able, traditionally, to uh, mass their forces and achieve great victories to capture American cities, to occupy them. But, but when they left, when the British Army rolled out of an American city, again, they had alienated so many people. People who beforehand, or during the, the British occupation, might have said, you know, God save um, King George, now would say, God save George Washington. The British... Uh, Fire a, fight a series of, of engagements throughout the American South. We do well in certain places and at certain times. But the main story is they could win battles. They could occupy places. But they can't win over our hearts or occupy a place in our minds where we want them to stay. Eventually, the British make a big mistake. You know, I'm, I'm a civilian at West Point. I don't uh, pretend to have any great military expertise. I don't pretend to, uh, to have the ability to pass along great advice to the cadets. So I, I, I tend not to. But there is one thing that I feel very comfortable telling them. Don't retreat to a peninsula. <laughs> and, and that is what the British do. Cornwallis, Cornwallis takes his forces to Yorktown. And, and, and his back is against the water. 
And George Washington gets wind of this. He's all the way up near New York City. George Washington gets wind of this. And he and the French General Rochambeau march their troops down um, toward, toward Yorktown. They try to get the advantage of surprise. They, they leave a, a small rear detachment behind them. They, they keep the campfires burning. They don't take down the tents. They want the British to think that, 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 that you know, we're still there. This is a, a, a military march with this column of soldiers that stretches for 30 miles, an amazing force that will be joined at Yorktown by the French Navy. Now, Cornwallis, he expected that he would receive um, relief from the British Navy. He expected that he would see the British Navy on the horizon. But the British Navy was defeated by Admiral de Gras, and it was the French Navy that arrived at Yorktown. And Cornwallis was surrounded. And in this, this, this uh, classic siege, eventually Cornwallis had to raise the white flag. But the day of the surrender ceremony, Cornwallis, uh, he called in sick. He just could not bear, could not bear to surrender his sword to George Washington. And so he sent his second in command to the surrender ceremony. And the second in command, I mean, this is such a classic, like, this. The second in command tries to surrender his sword to Rochambeau, to the French general. I mean, the whole point of this is that the United States is an independent nation. Well, Rochambeau's nobody's fool. He points toward George Washington. Surrender the sword to him. But George Washington, he's nobody's fool. He's not going to take this sword from the British second in command. Washington then points to his second in command, <laughs> General Benjamin Lincoln. And, and, and that is the man to whom the British surrender their sword. Well, with, with the conclusion of the siege at Yorktown, the main fighting of the Revolutionary War is over. But still, peace hasn't been declared. Still, there isn't a treaty. Still, there isn't a formal recognition of American independence. And so Washington, realizing that we need to keep our army together if we're going to have any leverage at the negotiating table, he marches his army back up to the Hudson River Valley. Um, to the present-day town of New Windsor, just south of Newburgh, New York, just north of West Point. And, and, and there, the Continental Army uh, encamps. And there, our, the army does what armies tend to do when they're not engaged in fighting or rigorous training. Not fighting, not training. This is an army that became engaged in complaining, in griping, in grousing, in lamenting, in worrying, worrying about what would happen to them, worrying about how their sacrifices would be recognized, worrying about what the Continental Congress would do when this peace treaty was signed and they no longer had a use for this army. And here are these men, these soldiers, these officers especially, started to complain about um, what they wanted out of this, this sacrifice. Some were saying that they wanted half pay for life. Others wanted pensions for a certain set number of years. Others wanted 
grants of land in the West. Others whispered about the possibility of maybe marching the army west and leaving the United States undefended. Still others whispered about marching the army toward, toward Philadelphia and, and forcing the Continental Congress at gunpoint to meet with their demands. Washington got wind of this. Washington did not like what he was seeing. Washington did not like what he was hearing, even, even before news of this conspiracy reached him. People were coming up with all sorts of, of, of ideas. Ideas that he said filled him with horror and detestation. Maybe most prominent among them was a letter that he received from one of his very own lieutenant colonels, a man made, named Lick, Lewis, sorry, Louis Nicola. Nicola writes to George Washington and says, you should be our king. Washington takes the letter and he, he casts it down. He, he, he says that it, it's, it's the worst idea he's ever heard. Until perhaps he heard the idea of marching soldiers to Philadelphia. I mean, what, what, way, what a way to snatch, to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory. I mean, what a, what a tragedy that would be to, to abandon the commitment to civilian control, to abandon the commitment to liberty, and to give in to the temptation of the use of force. Washington calls his officers together in this log structure at the last encampment of the Continental Army in, in, in New Windsor, New York, near Newburgh. And uh, he addresses the, uh, the men who assemble inside. And he has a, a speech that he has prepared. He, uh, he tells the men to look with the utmost horror and detestation on anyone who wishes, under any specious pretenses, to overturn the liberties of our country. But, he, but he's, he's, he's squinting down at the paper, and he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls something out. No one had ever, aside from his closest aides, no one had ever seen him in this way. He pulled out of his pocket a pair of spectacles, a pair of glasses, glasses which in the 18th century represented like real old age and, infirm and infirmity. It, it was really an affecting and, and, and almost pathetic sight to see George Washington, the leader of, of their army, putting on these glasses. But what really got them, what really slayed them is what he said next. Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles for I have grown not only gray, but almost blind in your service. And in that moment, to whatever extent this Newburgh conspiracy ever really existed, it disappeared. The, the, the men who were present, the people in the room, all of them talk about how absolutely affecting this gesture was on Washington's part. How, how these men, these war-hardened veterans, started to break down and sob. Here they were complaining. Here they were grousing. Here they were asking, what's in it for me? And there he was, George Washington, who had been with this fight since almost the very beginning. George Washington, who had exposed himself to every danger, 
George Washington, who had exposed himself and endured with them every hardship. George Washington, who served throughout the war without pay. George Washington, a man with bullet holes in his coat. And here they were, thinking about themselves. It was Washington's finest moment up to that point. And yet an even finer moment was soon to come. After the signing of the Treaty of Paris, which recognized the independence of the United States and the end of the war, Washington does something that, that few people in other parts of the world believed he would actually do. King George III supposedly said, when hearing people whisper that Washington at the end of the war might actually retire, he might actually step down. George III said, if he does that, then truly he is the world's greatest man. And that's exactly what Washington did. So after farewelling his offers, his officers, after taking leave of his soldiers, uh, after um, saying goodbye to his, his, his close friends and advisors in the army at Francis Tavern in New York City, George Washington makes his way down to the Continental Congress, which was meeting in Annapolis, Maryland. And, and there, George Washington tendered his resignation. He said, having now finished the work assigned me, I retire from the great theater of action and bidding an affectionate farewell to this august body under whose orders I have so long acted, I here offer my commission and take leave of all the employments of public life. And in that moment, General Washington becomes Citizen Washington. In that moment, Washington does something that so few victorious generals before him had done, that so few victorious generals since him have done. He gives up power. He returns power to the people. His example was, was, was so uh, rare that Americans who, who previously, when they compared Washington uh, to world historical figures, a lot of times Americans would compare him to Moses, right? Because Moses led his people um, from slavery to freedom. But now, now Americans began to compare George Washington to Cincinnatus, right? This, this, this Roman warrior statesman, this man who, entered his, who answers his, his country's call, who dropped the plow, who picked up the sword, who fought for Rome, but then rather than, than grasping onto power permanently, a man who traded in the sword for the plow and went back to live under his vine and his fig tree. I mean, this is the, the, the role that George Washington played for America. In uh, the state capitol at Richmond, there's this fantastic statue of George Washington by the French artist Jean-Antoine Houdin, and, and, and he really captures Washington's image in the minds of Americans. I mean, you see George Washington standing there. He uh, is in his uniform, but he has put away his sword. His sword has been returned um, to its, its scabbard, and what he's, he's holding in his hand is, a, is a, a, a gentleman's walking stick. You know, he's, his left hand rests upon uh, a Roman fasces, a symbol that was ruined in the 20th century by the fascists, but, but was a symbol of republicanism. And if you count the, uh, the, the, the components of the fasces, you count that there are 13 rods that are bound together. 
And of course, maybe most of all, when you look behind George Washington, when you look at his feet, what do you see? You see the blade of a plow. You know, here is George Washington, this man who, who, who put himself at risk, who answered his country's call, who, who fought for his country, who fought for liberty, who did not fight for power and did not seize power. And that really is sort of the key to the greatness of George Washington. And George Washington, he was a rich man, but really the thing that he valued the most and the thing that he, that he, that he took as his salary during the course of the, the War for Independence was his reputation. His reputation, he said, was his most valuable possession. And, and so, in the 1780s, when his friend James Madison approached him and implored him, implored him to preside over the Continental Congress, I'm sorry, the Constitutional Convention, George Washington uh, was, was initially mortified to do to, to put himself out there, to expose himself to criticism, to risk his reputation. I mean, what if this project to come up with a new constitution didn't go well? And of course, the whole enterprise was, at, at the very least, extra constitutional. I mean, we already had an, a constitution, the Articles of Confederation. And the Articles of Confederation had built into them a process for, for making amendments and for making changes. And, and, and this was a whole different process. And, and it was really illegitimate. And yet Washington thought it was also really important. And, and Madison convinced him, if, 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 this, if these proceedings are going to have legitimacy, they will have legitimacy because you preside over them. And so Washington, again, putting at risk what he values the most, his reputation, Washington decides to preside over the Constitutional Convention. And of course, the people at the Constitutional Convention, when they were designing this new government, this new framework, one of the criticisms of government under the Articles of Confederation is that the, the government lacked an executive. It lacked the capacity for, for action that one person as a leader could provide. And, and, and it was sort of a, an implicit assumption among all of the delegates, perhaps other than him, that he would be the president. And so this office that was created was really created with him in mind. Only he could be trusted. Only he could be trusted to have this power. Because Washington, they knew, had, had been, he had been trusted with power in the past. And he had always returned it to the people. So George Washington a man who would serve two terms as president. George Washington, who as president would, again, put at risk his reputation. And as we saw, George Washington, a man who exposed himself to great criticism as president. George Washington, who probably left the presidency with less of a reputation than he had entered it with. George Washington made this great sacrifice for his country. And, and of course, George Washington um, didn't disappoint. After serving two terms, he went back to Mount Vernon. He went back to his family. He went back to his farm. He went back to private life. So George Washington was a man who uh, was entrusted with tremendous powers. But perhaps the greatest power of all that was possessed by George Washington was the power of restraint. 
he understood the power, at least in our tradition, and government, at least in our tradition, was, was not something to be wielded by the few. He understood that government was not about the accumulation of power, at least not in our tradition, at least not with our revolution. Government instead was about empowering the people, about empowering the people to live free lives, about empowering the people to enjoy liberty. And so that, that is, I think, the thing that makes George Washington a true exemplar and truly great. I, I, I want to conclude uh, by thanking you and also telling you a little story. So uh, I have, uh, as I've mentioned, um, two kids. Uh, their names are Jefferson and Grace. I have a photo of them. They're, this is about a year and a half ago at, a, at my best friend's wedding. Um, but there they are. And uh, they're, they're up in Northern California with, with my wife um, visiting her family. And uh, we've, we've had a wonderful summer. We love taking them around and showing them historical sites. Um, we've done this many times. Uh, a few years back, we went to Philadelphia, um, the scene of so much of, you know, that I've discussed. And uh, we, we went to Betsy Ross House, and we went to Independence Hall, and we went to City Tavern, and we had um, dinner there. And City Tavern is where the Continental Congress would take its meals. Um, and as we were finishing up dinner, uh, my son, Jefferson, um, expressed his desire to see the Liberty Bell. And, and I was really worried because I thought the Liberty Bell might be closed. Uh, we got there at 6.55. We were the last people in line to go see the Liberty Bell. We walk up to the Liberty Bell, and there it is. And, uh, you know, Jefferson, he, he always loved history, but he was certainly a, a typical three-year-old boy. Um, you know, he was really into trucks. He was really into trucks and trains, and he loved Bob the Builder, and he had this Bob the Builder toolkit, you know, with like a saw and a hammer and... Um, a drill and, and, and a whole bit. But anyway, we, we got talking to the, uh, the, the very nice man who was the, um, the National Park um, Ranger, and he loved the fact that my son's name was Jefferson. Of course he did, because he was you know, a ranger at Independence National Historical Park. And, and then we, you know, he found out that I was a history professor, and we started talking about certain books and you know, uh, scholars who we, we admired, and we were the last people there. And so the, the park ranger kind of leaned forward and, 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 he, and, he, and he sort of half whispered to me, um, do you want me to let him touch the bell? And I had two thoughts. My, my first thought is, was, is this how our federal government protects our national treasures? And, and, and my second thought was, heck yes. So Jefferson, Jefferson touched the Liberty Bell. But, but afterwards, as we were leaving, he, he was really concerned because he noticed something. He said, it's cracked, Daddy. The, the bell is cracked. And he was really sad about this. I mean, he was really devastated. that this, The Liberty Bell had a crack in it. But then he kind of straightened up and he had a big smile and he said, I'll fix it. I'll fix it with my tools. <laughs> well, I, I want to thank all of you for, for, for joining us uh, this week and, 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 and you know, enjoying this time with me. I want to thank... Uh, all of you for supporting the Cato Institute. I want to thank all the people here who work full-time for the Cato Institute for, for providing us, all of us, right, with the tools that we can use to repair and preserve and promote liberty. When I think about the things that one could do with one's life, I mean, there, there are so many great callings, but 
you know, maybe, and maybe I'm, I'm, I'm overlooking something, but I, I can't think of anything more important than protecting liberty. So uh, to all of you, um, for what you do for the Cato Institute, for, for, for paying attention um, to uh, these, these issues, for, for following the news, for working in your communities, and, and, and to my friends at the Cato Institute, for all you do to make it possible for those of us who are not in Washington, D.C., to know that there are people in this city, right, that, that bears George Washington's name, the city that in some ways is shames George Washington's memory. It's nice to know that there's one place, one place in Washington, D.C., where George Washington would feel at home. So thank you to the Cato Institute. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So, uh, a couple questions. So, uh, I mean, I'll, the people with the microphones, if you want to just choose people right. and my, with them. My question is, you had mentioned about how you figured, or related over time, that uh, George Washington knew that uh, civilians would probably ha change their mind. And I was wondering, to what extent do you think that had to do with quartering soldiers during wartime? Because I know not every home quartered soldiers, right, but right. many did. And it's the Third Amendment, thou shall not quarter a soldier, I believe. Maybe different <laughs> words, but um, <laughs> just how big of an impact do you think that had? Or was it more of potentially like an intellectual development with citizens? I think it's, I think it's, you know, it's an accumulation of all these different factors. When you think about the American Revolution, in the, in the 1760s, you have people who, you know, at the time were probably seen as extremists. You know, people like Sam Adams, people like James Otis, people who, who said that the British had a design to take away our liberties. You know, they, they, they designed ultimately to enslave us, to rob us of our freedom as Englishmen. And, and those people who seem so, so extreme, right, a word that uh, people like to use against their adversaries back then, as well, those people who initially may have seen extreme, um, the British actions that followed, you know, whether it was taxation, whether it was quartering, whether it was the Boston Massacre, I mean, all of, all of these actions piled up. And, and these people who early on may have been, been seen as extremists, as, as people with these wild prophecies, well, the British government fulfilled those prophecies. So, you know, the, the specific issue of quartering troops I, I, I'm not, you know, sure the extent to which that in and of itself and on its own um, was influential upon the American people, but it was part of, of a big bundle of transgressions against their rights that the American people looked at and, and felt convinced had to be evidence of a design to really systematically change the order of things and, and, and really uh, take away their ability to govern themselves as free people. Um, sorry. Um, the revolution had already occurred. It was, we, you know, in our quote, uh, by 1775, 1776, the war had not occurred yet, uh, but the revolution in terms of thought had. Was there any realistic way that King George could have gotten out of the war? 
Um, could he have made some, did he have, was the political situation in England and in the colonies such that he had any realistic options? Could he have uh, allowed sufficient freedom uh, in the colonies that would have bought them off? Could he have uh, politically simply said, okay, you guys are out of here and you're on your own? Or was the die already cast just a question of uh, uh, when the war was going to be fought? It's, you know, it, it's, it's a tough question. It's a great question, but it's a tough one to answer because, you know, ultimately it's kind of a counterfactual question. I mean, we, we know that the British um, are, uh, they, you know, they send peace emissaries. They send people to negotiate. Uh, they're, they're, they do draw a hard line, though, on the question of independence. They're not going to recognize it. They do offer pardons um, at various phases to everyone except um, the top leaders of the revolutionary movement. Um, you know, they do hope to sue for peace. Um, but, but ultimately, I, I think as, as the war progresses and continues, uh, the ability that there's going to be, or the, the sense that there could be any negotiated end um, to this war uh, really begins to evaporate. And, and uh, it's only after the political situation changes in Parliament. I mean, Yorktown is kind of a, sort of a, a nail in the coffin. Uh, you can imagine. I mean, this, the irony of this is, how did this begin? I mean, Great Britain had fought the French and Indian War and it had achieved victory and had established for itself this great empire in North America. But it came at a cost. It came at a price. And their debt doubled. And so Britain turned to the colonies and tried to impose upon the colonies some, in their eyes, modest taxes to, to try to correct this financial imbalance. And that began a, a, a process. That began a chain of events that, that ironically is going to cause Great Britain to get into an even longer, even more expensive war that this time it's going to lose. And all of the gains you know, the French and Indian War are, are, are going to be erased. And, and, and I think, you know, the members of parliament realized that they, they couldn't continue to just keep double, doubling down on failure. And, and, and when the political will was lost to continue this war, um, that, I think, is when America really won. Uh, two more questions, please. I wonder if you can comment briefly um, uh, on, uh, I think, which, a topic that has to be discussed when you talk about Washington, which is his bravery. Um, there's a story, I think, at Monmouth Courthouse when uh, a British soldier, uh, a musketeer, had an opportunity to kill Washington and couldn't pull the trigger. I think that was in a diary of one of the British soldiers. But in general, uh, the number of bullet holes in Washington's clothing, yeah. horses shot out from under him, how he was not, he didn't lead from the back, he led from the front. If you could just comment on his bravery, which is often forgotten about. Yeah, I mean, you know, he, he literally exposed himself to, to just about every danger, not in a foolhardy way, but, but he did lead from the front. And, you know, he, he, he is a person who, I, I think, he really had judgment, um, and he really understood how his actions were perceived. Um, not just on the battlefield, but, you know, off the battlefield. A lot of people, you know, fail to appreciate that component of Washington's generalship. An example is at Valley Forge, uh, desertion was uh, an incredibly big problem. And Washington uh, had captured, uh, well, not personally, but the Continental Army had captured three deserters. 
And they were habitual deserters. It wasn't the, the, their first offense. And, uh, you know, they were court-martialed and they were sentenced to the maximum penalty for desertion, which was death. And Washington decided that it was important to make an example. It was important for people to see that desertion was unacceptable and that it would not be tolerated. But he didn't want to kill three people. He, he thought he just needed one example. So then for Washington, the question was, who does he pardon? And, 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 and who's going to uh, fall victim to the firing squad? And, and the answer was, or I'm sorry, the gallows. They were hanged in, in, in this case. And uh, he decided um, that, that the person who was not going to be pardoned was a person from Virginia. And I, I think what Washington was, was, was trying to show is that you know, in these three basically equal cases, he's not going to kill all three just to be consistent. But he's not going to pardon the Virginian and, and act like he's playing favorites. You know, I mean, he, he really has this ability. I mean, this is, and this is a horrible story, right? I mean, I'm horrified by this thought. It's such a tough decision and a tough dilemma. But this is tough stuff. This is a war. And wars are horrible. And, and Washington is able to, 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 to make these tough decisions. And, and you could look at his, his decisions sometimes and you could try to, you could second guess them. But, but, but it, it seems pretty clear why he makes the decisions that he does. And uh, he, he is trying to, to forge you know, a, a union of these different states. And he's trying to hold this enterprise together. Um, and he's trying to, to keep this army together. Because he knows it's, it's not, again, so much that we have to defeat the British. It's that we have to outlast the British. And, and so the greatest enemy that we had was maybe not the British. Um, the greatest enemy that we had was potentially ourselves. Yes? I am a relatively new uh, disciple of the Cato Institute. Um, however, I've been most impressed with a minor point that's been raised here of uh, communication. Uh, we are 200 people here approximately, and uh, we very much agree. I've been in conversation over the last few days, and uh, the point that has really been impressed on me is that we must communicate. We must spread the word. Um, you have raised it slightly, but the population, the, the spread of things that have gone on <clears throat> have uh, kind of deteriorated in our current government in the fact that uh, people vote ignorantly and so forth, but uh, let us all spread the word a little more as we have opportunity. Thank you. I think that's a great point. And you know, one of the things that I, and you know, just one final point, one of the things that I love so much about history is you could look back at, at, at the past and see these people. I mean, George Washington, for all of his strengths, for all of his virtues, he was a man. He was really just a man. And he wasn't perfect. And he faced some outrageous, huge 
challenges. And, and, and when you look at the revolutionary generation, when you look at other people who fought for freedom throughout American history, when you look at abolitionists, when you look at people like, like Frederick Douglass, you know, when, when you look at all these people who have, who have made tough stands, I mean, as, as, as challenging as our current situation may seem to us, there are other people who have faced even, even worse odds. And they have triumphed, right? Because they have stuck with it. Um, they have cared about the cause. So thank you very much for that sentiment. And thank you all for your attention. <laughs>